You want to go ahead and read the thing? Hundreds of feet below the rolling farmland and forest of western Kentucky is a limestone cave unlike any other on the planet. In the absolute dark, passage after winding passage leads past domes and chambers dripping with stalactites and decorated with flowery outcroppings of crystal and onyx. An underground river flows silently under multicolored arches of stone. Under the water's glassy surface, eyeless fish compete for algae and snails. Mineral formations resemble lopsided columns, clusters of popcorn, and frozen waterfalls. The cave also yields up fossils from prehistoric sharks, ferns, and salamanders, plus the occasional set of human remains. Over 400 miles of natural wonders have been mapped inside Mammoth Cave, and explorers speculate there may be hundreds more. The riches of the caves have always fascinated humans, but in the late 19th and early 20th century, that fascination evolved into cutthroat competition for the most profitable cavern rights, location, and tour routes. On this episode of Relative Disasters, we explore the story of the Kentucky Cave Wars, ten years of spelunking and scamming that involved luxury hotels, shady advertising, lawsuits, souvenir stalactites, teenage tour salesmen, and the horrific and very publicized death of cave explorer Floyd Collins. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Vice President of Cave Survey Management here at Relative Disasters Corporation. And I'm her brother Greg, Chair of the Spelunking Safety Department here at Relative Disasters University. Thank you so much for that horrifying story, Greg. It's not really that horrifying, uh, but I'm looking forward to learning about it. <laughs> Today we're going to be taking a look at the Kentucky Cave Wars, where natural wonders meet uh, Roaring Twenties Capitalism, Yay. I think is the best way to put it. <laughs> Okay. I'm going to begin by citing our primary sources for this episode, which are The Kentucky Cave Wars by David Randolph Ken mm -hmm. and Trapped, The Floyd Collins Story by Robert Murray and Roger Brucker. Those are both excellent, and if either of those interest you or you're interested in caving, uh, you got to check those out. They're really good books. So Mammoth Cave in Kentucky is one of the great natural wonders of the world. Is it? Yes, today it's cool. a national park, and about two million people per year go there to see it. Cool. Uh, you can take like a walk through and see all those famous passages and formations with a guide. And uh, the National Park Service also supports scientific work in the cave on all kinds of like underground research projects. Okay. Now, because the federal government owns it, um, it's all very regulated and controlled. There are the rules, uh, maps, entrances are ADA compliant, and everything, like every place that you go in the cave as a tourist is like inspected and double-checked for safety. Cool. So if you take a tour nowadays, you might be tempted to believe that this kind of like orderly management and respect for nature has always been there. We are here to tell you... <laughs> as we like to do on Relative Disasters, that this was not always the case. Yeah. Now, how far back do you want to go? I mean, I'm I'm all for going to pre-Cambrian period and talking about how rock formations, but Sweet. how far back do you want to go? Okay. 
Um, I was thinking like 325 million years ago. Does that sound That right? sounds about, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll get there when we get there. Does that sound about right? <laughs> okay. So 325 million years ago, this area was underwater. Right. It was ocean bed. Yeah. So it was like a big old layer cake of limestone, which is like one of the softer, um, kind of more porous kinds of sedimentary rock. Yep. That's where all those cool fossils come from. Yeah, in. yeah. So over the next 300 million years, the ocean recedes, the limestone dries off, uh, it gets rained on. Okay. And the water, the fresh water kind of gradually works its way through the limestone. And that's what forms those like huge passages and chambers that Mammoth Cave is known right, for. Right, right. So by 5000 BCE, much of the cave was dried out and fully formed, and the Native Americans living in the area were able to get inside and explore. Cool. So these are the late Archaic and the early Woodland civilizations. Okay. And these guys, like, I have to tell you, they were fearless, okay? <laughs> they had these reed torches for light. It's basically like flaming grass. Yeah. Okay. They made it through these unbelievably tight and difficult sections of the cave, and remains of those torches have been found as far as 12 miles into the cave. So 12 what? miles from the entrance. These guys were, like, in there with their burning blades of grass, checking things out. And they left petroglyphs and carvings. Amazing. And they were in there for something. Like, nobody's really sure what they're in there for. I mean, in um, there to take a look around would be my guess. <laughs> it's cool in there. <laughs> It's really cool in there. That's true. But they were in there. They were working. Like, they brought tools. Okay. And they, like, their little discard piles and their tool marks kind of show that they were collecting stuff. Okay. Um, like, possibly minerals for trade. Uh, they were using gypsum for something because they scraped it off the wall. Okay. Okay. Um, and they would take them away in baskets. They also used the cave for intentional burial. So they would lay people to rest with tools and jewelry and clothing. Okay. Uh, the woodland people disappear around 200 BCE, and the cave is kind of left to itself until American settlers of European descent arrive in the area in the 18th century. Okay. Did you ever see uh, Last of the Mohicans? Oh, God, a long time ago. Yeah, well, Daniel Day-Lewis, he's always talking about, like, he wants to... He wants to head to the frontier. He wants to go to Kentucky. This is where he's talking yeah, yeah, yeah. about. This is like the wilderness. This is frontier. Right. To the Europeans, anyway. Right. Um, so the story, the local story, is that the main entrance to what becomes Mammoth Cave is discovered when a boy is out hunting. He shoots a bear and he chases it into a hidden entrance in the cave. Uh, note uh, to all of so our no word. all of our lovely listeners out there: don't chase bears into caves. No, no, it's a poor choice. And like, that's where the story ends. There's no word on like. <laughs> and then the kid came out survives. and he was fine. Nope. <laughs> the bear steaks were wonderful. That right, year. right, right. But the cave does become known locally for its mineral deposits, so it becomes useful to white American landowners because they love minerals uh, or more. Accurately, their enslaved African-American laborers can mine saltpeter out of the caverns. Okay. And they use that to make gunpowder. Yeah. All right. So in 1813, a mummy is discovered in a dry cavern called Short Cave. Okay. She's wrapped in deer skin and her clothes were decorated in feathers and beads and the dry conditions. So the upper part of the portion is pretty dry. And those conditions had preserved her body. She's a mummy. And and do we have any word on what sort of curse she has on her, or are we just we're good with this? You know, it's so funny you ask that, um, <laughs> <laughs> because I am a hundred percent sure that when she was laid to rest, somebody cursed her. Because this is what happens. Um, 
the owners of Short Cave decide that she is a beautiful young woman named Fawn Hoof. Okay. And they give her this very tragic and very fictional backstory. Of course. Then they put her on display. Okay. So above the saltpeter mine, they put her on like a rock outcropping. Uh, they add some velvet ropes, I assume. And they show her off to tourists for a ticket. Yep. Right? It's very like Ripley's, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With actual human remains. Yeah. I get it. I get it. So over the next few years, the cave owners find that mummy-seeking tourists were much more profitable than saltpeter. Okay. And they kind of repurpose. So the enslaved black laborers stop mining and start guiding and carrying luggage for tourists. Okay. And there was luggage because it's really difficult to get to this area of Kentucky at the time. It's all wild and forested and the roads yeah. are horrible. Yeah, yeah. So when people come all that way, they want to get, like, the full experience. Sure. So they camp out in the cave. And after a look at the mummy, they do these long, like, exploratory treks for days and weeks at a time. Got it. I guess it would be kind of comparable to people taking a tour of, like, the Amazon. Okay. Right? It's, like, a very remote, expensive trip that you'd be, like, talking about for the rest of your life. And you're only going to do it if you're super wealthy. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, to any to the degree that is that any something of it you would do, sense. Greg? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So in the 1830s, the caves become more popular as a tourist attraction when a fancy 25-room hotel is built right outside the main entrance. Yep. Well, the hotel is purchased by Dr. John Krogan, who also buys the cave. Now he's a doctor, and his big idea is to build some little huts inside the cave and park his tuberculosis patients in there to see if their health improves. Uh huh. You know. Like science. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think happens? Yes. <laughs> they all die. I was going to say, um, their health did not improve. It did not, sadly. Uh, and Dr. Krogan is so discouraged, he gets out of the healthcare business, which he probably should have done. Yep. And he becomes a full-time cave tour operator. Okay. And his first okay. move is to have an enslaved man named Stephen Bishop explore as much of the cave as he can. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about a couple of fearless cave explorers, and Stephen Bishop is the earliest and the best. Right? Okay. So he finds and names a number of the most famous parts of Mammoth Cave. Like he finds an underground river and then goes fishing. Okay. Right? He finds a way across a hole called, quote, the bottomless pit. Okay. Okay. And he opens up just miles and miles of the How, how bottomless he also was makes this? 150 feet deep. It's not that impressive. Okay. But. I mean, still, that's not... It's a 15-story building, you know? It's not something you know? you'd want to drop down, exactly. No, it's not. But Stephen Bishop is not afraid of anything in the cave. I mean, um, he sounds pretty cool. And he also makes the first map of Mammoth Cave from memory. Wow. Okay. He is, yeah. So he becomes like a little bit of a celebrity. And in the 1840s, so well before emancipation, yeah. he is so wealthy, he is able to buy his freedom and work as a paid guide. And he actually becomes a farmer later on. Nice. Yeah. Stephen Bishop is one of the few success stories of Mammoth Cave. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Then we can wrap this up right now. Right. And that's the and end. that's Thanks the end. Everything listening. else was fine. <laughs> All right. So when Dr. Krogan dies in 1849, he is obscenely wealthy by local standards. Okay. Right. He's been making all this money off showing off his cave and his tuberculosis experiment. Uh, now, he owns the cave outright. But it gets really tricky. So he doesn't have children. Yeah. But he does have about 1,700 acres of land. And he owns the rights to the caverns under his land. This is where it gets a little weird. Okay. Uh, because as we learned in the intro, Mammoth Cave is 
enormous. It extends well beyond those 1,700 acres. And Dr. Kurgan had to have known that, but he doesn't tell anyone, and he never tries to buy up all the land over the cave. Okay. He just hangs on to his piece, and he'll bring tour groups all around the cave. Like, he doesn't care if he's on his land or off his land. He's just going to keep doing it. Okay. Because, again, he's making money hand over fist. Okay, so when he dies, the ownership of the cave passes into a trust, and his will stipulates that it can't be sold until the last of his nieces and nephews die. Okay. His youngest niece is like an infant at this time. Okay, that's fun. So tourists continue to visit, and as the American frontier becomes more developed, more and more people come. And the cave just fascinates people. They take photographs, they describe it to their friends, they write lots and lots of articles and books. Uh, my favorite, which you can actually read on Google Books, is called The Sucker's Visit to Mammoth Cave by Ralph Seymour Thompson. Okay. And it, I'm gonna, just going to, like, it's really purple, <laughs> but I'm going to read you a passage that I think really nails, like, the attraction of the cave, which is this kind of otherworldliness. Right. All right, quote, There is, however, one peculiar feature about the cave. Whatever feeling of awe or fear may be engendered by any of the scenes can never be associated with those feelings of ghostly dread which the superstitious are apt to connect with darkness. A person of active imagination left alone in the cave might conjure up a demon out of the darkness, but he could not raise a ghost. There is something about the cave so different from the world of life. It seems to be so completely disconnected with everything above ground that the most timid or the most superstitious would feel at once that the idea of a ghost or a phantom wandering through its silent chambers would be absurd. No sheeted ghost, no ghastly grinning skeleton would have the power to terrify there. One feels instinctively that he is not in the spirit world. End quote. Yeah. The rest of the book, by the way, is about how difficult it is to get there. <laughs> it's all about, these were the terrible roads. These were the bad hotels. Oh, okay. Here's how we got ripped off. <laughs> awesome. But I think it is worth it for the description of the cave. Cool. Cool. All right. So by the end of the 19th century, the roads are improved, the hotels are expanding, a railroad makes a direct trip to the cave's front entrance, and people are coming to visit Mammoth Cave in droves. Okay. Now, this area of Kentucky is still fairly rural and fairly impoverished. Right. Because of all the limestone that's right under the soil, it's not much good for farming, right? Yeah. And there aren't, like, any transit hubs or any big cities and the one natural resource is this massive cave. Okay. Okay. So we've got like a lot of people doing subsistence farmer farming. Um, nobody's really making a ton of money except for Dr. Krogan. And when cave tourism becomes a thing, everybody in the area wants in. And the people living in the area start looking at their own land. And a lot of them find caves. Okay. So a lot of them start getting developed for tours. Yeah. Um, and then the caves that are not as spectacular, people just like rip the minerals out and start selling them on the roadside as souvenirs. You want a stalactite? <laughs> Do you want a blind fish? Uh, no, I don't want any of that. That sounds a little ghoulish. Well, come on down. A lot of the Kentucky Cave Wars takes place on the roadside. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where it really gets going with these little souvenir stands. All right, so these new caves start to compete with Mammoth Cave for tourist dollars, and they do so with a lot of passionate and less-than-truthful advertising. So they claim to have special formations, 
or mummies, or they use language that suggests that they're more spectacular than Mammoth Cave. Okay. And Mammoth Cave's thing is that it's big. Yeah. It's not really showy. Like, you really have to hunt for the the beautiful, untouched mineral formations. Gotcha, gotcha. It's just huge. That's the attraction. Right. So these smaller caves are often like, oh, we have amazing onyx formations, or we have thousands of crystals. Right. I don't know. So everybody's got an angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and and the cave industry today still does that. So, yeah. Right. It's a little more regulated yeah. now. I think people know a little bit more that it's not a good idea to rip stalactites out of your cave. Right, right. right. That's not what I mean. I mean like advertising. You know, this cave has the largest indoor waterfall. This cave has. You know, the the advertising mm. and marketing of caves is still pretty. Uh, I would say cutthroat, except that it's like oddly Ooh. so because they're <laughs> like they don't they don't you know they don't put down other caves. They're just like you know. Well, we have. It's weird. Anyway, mm. it's all about the angle. Sure. Uh, so the Krogan Trust doesn't like that. Okay. But they have bigger problems, and that problem is they're leading tours in areas of the cave that extend beyond their land. Okay. So in 1908, they have Mammoth Cave formally surveyed. And they realize that they're using miles and miles of passageway. They don't actually have the rights to. Right. Uh, so, of course, they get in touch with their neighbors and offer them a cut. Ha! Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> they keep the survey secret and just keep doing it. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's exactly what we thought would happen. <laughs> Capitalism. It's not about how are you going to make money. It's how are you going to make all the exactly, money. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So karma bites them in the butt a few years later when a local entrepreneur opens up a new cave that actually connects to Mammoth Cave. And this is a very showy cavern that kind of leads to the larger caverns that are connected to Mammoth Cave. Okay. And he calls it the New Entrance. That's the name of the cave. New Entrance. Yeah. And the problem for Mammoth is that it's closer to the highway, and the owner advertises it in the style of the other caves, like it's a little sleazy. He has like a giant sign by the road that says, turn here for the new entrance to Mammoth Cave. Okay. So he's the first real threat to the Krogan Trust's practice of leading tours on passages that they don't have the rights to. He pays for a new survey, there's a lawsuit, and eventually they have to pick a point that no one can pass beyond without buying a ticket to the rest of the cave. Yeah. They're in court for like years. It gets very Jarndyce versus Jarndyce. Yeah. Okay. So even outside the official parts of Mammoth Cave, there's still a ton of money to go around. So smaller, those smaller, like family-owned caves that I mentioned are also advertising on the roadside and setting up souvenir mineral stands, and they're like printing all kinds of brochures and newspaper advertisements. And in the 1910s and the 1920s, that's not enough. Everyone also starts hiring solicitors. These are teenage boys who wait along the side of the road. They flag down passing cars and they try to direct the drivers right. to their cave. Like sometimes they'll actually sell you a ticket. They'll climb onto your running board uh -huh. and sell you a ticket of course, and give you directions. Because that's, that's <laughs> great. That's what a business model. Okay. What a business model. And these guys are very aggressive little salesmen. They're all like 12 and 13 yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've ever been approached by a 12 or a 13 year old, but they can be terrifying. <laughs> I mean, when they want something from you, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this stretch of highway gets a reputation for really bad traffic. Mm -hmm. 
And this is kind of the height of the Kentucky Cave Wars. So if you're a tourist, there's tons of signage, tons of little souvenir and refreshment stands, and then these hordes of, like, shouting, waving boys yep. who want to jump on your running board and sell you a ticket. Okay. Okay. Um, to a cave that may or may not be, like, a sinkhole in some farmer's backyard. And then to landowners and investors, there's this whole other world of, like, lawsuits, construction, cavern rights, surveys, um, speculation, investments. It's just, like, madness okay. from either side. To cave explorers, though, this period is absolutely great. So anyone willing to get into a cave and poke around for weak spots that might be entrances or cool formations or, like, unusual minerals or waterways, those guys can find work. And if they find something amazing, they'll also get rich. Okay. Now, they're not unionized. They're not organized. There's no kind of, like, safety. Like, no one's developed a handbook. Right, right. <laughs> There's no club or organization watching out for these guys. They're all independent contractors. Yeah. So Floyd Collins is one of those guys who is willing to get into a cave. And like Stephen Bishop, the cave does not scare him. Okay. So he's been lost. He's been trapped. He keeps going back for more alone with a single light. Yeah. In his street clothes and a little cloth cap. Okay, all of those things are not things that you do today as a modern right, spelunker. Right. Like, you would always have a buddy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And a hard hat. <laughs> and scuba gear. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so it's really kind of amazing that he survived into his 30s. <laughs> because since he was a little kid, like a tiny kid, he's been digging around his family farm looking for caves. And he gets really, really good at figuring out where the rock opens up and, like, where the passageways are, even if it's covered in forest. Okay. So he claims he can hear caves breathing, which is a really spooky thought. Well, it, uh, a, lot of, a lot of professional spelunkers actually speak of caves in terms of, like, living things you know you can tell when yeah. when the cave is turning against you you can tell when the cave is calm today stuff like that so whoo oh it's so creepy I, it's so spooky. i think it's neat i think it's neat it reminds me of that quote that i read you about the other world yeah yeah like at what point would it become a living organism like they grow they like change i don't know it reminds me of the stories of the old trolls where you know Ooh, every yeah. every mountain is just a sleeping troll, and uh, I don't know. I think it's neat. Well, so does Floyd Collins. Um, and by 1925, Floyd Collins has discovered his own cave on family property. It's called Crystal Cave. Okay. And he thinks it's connected to Mammoth Cave, but he and his brothers, who are also cavers, cannot find the entrance. Right. Okay. Um, so when he's not working with his brothers to open it up for tourists, they unfortunately do not have the best location. He kind of goes caving for other landowners to, like, figure out if their caves are big or small or where the passageways might be and so forth. He, like, puts his spooky cave sense to gotcha. work for hire. Spooky cave sense, yes. Spooky cave sense. Yeah. In 1925, he's hired by a neighbor, B. Doyle, to explore a cave on Doyle's property. Okay. This is Sand Cave, which is... I don't know how to describe it. It looks like an open mouth in a hillside. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's huge, but it's shallow, and it's got a sandy floor. Like, you can easily walk in, and it's it's 
like it's very generous. You walk into like a semicircle with a sandy floor. Okay. You can see out. Like it's a very unclaustrophobic cave. Sure. And it's shallow. It's only, gosh, maybe 100 feet deep. Okay. So you can walk all the way to the back and still see. Okay. You know, it's a nice cave. It's a good starter cave. Sure. Sure. I would be comfortable there. Okay. So we're going to set the bar really low. I mean, I'm, I'm fine <laughs> with setting the bar low. Okay. Um, so Doyle sees this beautiful cave and he thinks it might be worth opening up. So he thinks there might be some more cave behind this cave. Okay. Because the back is full of like fallen limestone rocks and he thinks that if they get blasted out of the way, he's going to find something amazing back there. Okay. So he hires Floyd to check it out and Floyd's spooky cave sense indeed tells him that there is a larger cavern beyond the end of Sand Cave. Now, back in the day, they were not very nuanced about this. They would just go in with the dynamite and blast wherever they thought a good spot would be. <laughs> like you do. As you do. <laughs> so, so Floyd spends a few weeks like drying the cave out, and he digs around in the sand, and he does some blasting. And finally, he has what he thinks is an access point. Okay. So on January 30th, 1925, he puts on his boots grabs a lantern, he's using a kerosene lantern, mm -hmm. and he heads down a very close and narrow crack at the back of the cave. And I just want to give you a content warning here. If you're a claustrophobic, maybe pick another episode. We have some really good episodes that will not make you <laughs> feel gross. Okie doke. <laughs> this is not that episode. This is going to make you feel really gross okay. if you have claustrophobia. Okay. Oh, and I should also say before we follow Floyd down this tiny narrow crack... Cave explorers are generally really small, yeah. skinny people. It helps. It helps, right? These passages are barely big enough to fit a human through. Okay. Like you just physically can't get yourself into some of these cracks. Like the human body just won't go there unless it's very, very small. A lot of cavers tend to be really short, sure. really light people. And Floyd is actually on the larger side physically for a caver. He's tall and he weighs about 160 pounds. Okay. So he's like at the maximum size to get himself down this extremely tight passageway that he thinks will lead to a cavern. And we're not talking crawling or stooping. Uh, Floyd is on his stomach. Yeah. He's wiggling very carefully head first yep. into this damp, dripping, chilly tunnel. Yep. Uh, it's lined with loose rocks. He's moving his kerosene lantern ahead of him. And in cross-section, the passage is like a capital S with an extra curve off the tail. It's extremely narrow. There's no room to turn around. And he's heading down. He's like corkscrewing around, twisting. He's on his front. He's on his back. He's kind of shouldering his way through. There are two sections where it's so tight he almost can't fit. Okay. Uh, for most people, the claustrophobia, I think, would be completely unbearable. And Floyd just wiggles on through the entire crazy S, sure. which takes him about an hour. And he drops out onto a ledge. And beyond the ledge is a pit so huge he can't see across or to the bottom. But this is great news. Not only can he catch his breath, but big pits mean that there's a possibility of more passageways. Right. And possibly that wonderful connection to Mammoth Cave that he really wants to find. Right. And this is the moment his lantern chooses to start having trouble. Oh, no. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Wouldn't you know it? Okay. It's not good. No, it's really, really not good. And I don't know that he would have experienced a different outcome if the lantern had not gone out, but okay. that's the way it goes. Okay. So he's got this problem light, and he's trying to wiggle back up that passageway before it goes out. He gets a little ways into the tunnel. He gets to the bottom of that 
extra curve on the S, yep. and the light dies completely. Um, I would panic to death at this point. <laughs> but to Floyd, this is really no big deal. He's had the light go out before. He knows where he's going. Um, he's just not too bothered. He sets it aside and squeezes on up. Okay. Okay. So now he's wiggling headfirst up over those loose sections of limestone in the most absolute dark you can imagine. And gravity is not on his side right. the way it had been going in. So he puts one foot into a crevice for leverage. Mm -hmm. And as he's reaching up, he accidentally knocks a rock loose with his elbow. The rock falls on his foot, <laughs> pinning it into the crevice. Oh, and it causes a little avalanche of smaller rocks and dust and dirt that fall down. And this is the point where Floyd Collins becomes pinned in place in this narrow little tunnel. Okay. So he's tilted kind of forward. His weight is on his chest. His head is free. He's stuck by the foot, and he's packed in place by all that loose rubble. Like, he can't move. He can breathe. Yeah. But he can't move his arms. And as much as he struggles, he cannot move his foot at all. Okay. His foot is completely pinned. Okay. All right. Now, B. Doyle, who's hired him, knows where he is. And when Floyd doesn't show up to his place for dinner, and he doesn't show up for breakfast the next morning, yep. and he doesn't find Floyd in the open part of the cave, yep. he borrows his neighbor's teenage son, Jewel, and has him crawl into the hole. Great. Now, I ask you, <laughs> where is this child's mother? Jewel is like 17 years hey, old. Hey, kid, want to earn a nickel? <laughs> I hope you got paid for this. But Jewel is smaller and thinner than Floyd, and he's able to make it all the way down the tiny tunnel to where Floyd is stuck about 12 hours after the accident. Okay. So he pops back up and tells Mr. Doyle that Floyd is alive, he's conscious, he's upright, he's buried in rubble, um, that he's injured a foot, and that he wants a blanket because it's cold, cold water is dripping yep. on him. Yeah, which would drive me absolutely crazy. Yep. Um, he wants a crowbar so he can get the rock off his foot. He wants hot coffee, and he wants two people. He wants his younger brother, Homer, okay. and another caver named Johnny Gerald to come down and dig him out. Jewel refuses to go back down there, and I do not blame him. Right. And this is the beginning of the rescue effort. So over the next few days, Homer Collins and Johnny Gerald try everything they can think of to get Floyd out alive. And they're both very experienced cave explorers, and they can get to Floyd, but they're both bigger than he is, and they can barely fit like down to where he is without getting stuck themselves. Okay. But above ground, they have all kinds of tools and help because now the fire department is there and dozens of people have gathered to see what's going on and offer help. Uh, the press has also arrived. Oh, okay. <laughs> As they do. So the Louisville Courier Journal has sent a brand new reporter named William Miller to cover the story for their readers. Okay. Now, I don't know if they did this deliberately, but Miller has to be the smallest man on staff. He's five and a half feet tall and 117 pounds. Okay. His nickname is, not surprisingly, Skeets. <laughs> this guy's the size of a mosquito. Sure. And I have to tell you, he's not a very ambitious journalist. He's actually doing newspaper work on the side as he is working on his career as an opera singer. He's somehow a very talented baritone. Okay. <laughs> Tiny man, deep voice. Fair enough. But when he gets to Sand Cave and asks if he can speak to the trapped caver to get a quote, Homer Collins takes one look at him and says, if you want information, there's the hole right over nice. there. Nice. You can go down and find out for yourself. <laughs> that is a direct quote. That's fantastic. <laughs> Homer Collins is Homer Collins is a great character. Okay. Okay. 
So this is the first time Miller has ever been in a cave, and he is completely terrified. Okay. I don't know if I told you how old he is. He's like 20 or 21. Okay. Um, but he is able to make it down to Floyd Collins, and he talks to him for about 10 minutes before the claustrophobia overwhelms him, and he has to get out. Okay. So he stumbles out of the cave, throws up, bursts into tears, and becomes determined to do whatever he can to help rescue Floyd. Okay. So Skeets Miller never gets over his fear of the cave. But he becomes one of the most useful rescuers because not only can he get down to Floyd, he's small enough to start digging out all that loose rubble around him and pass it out over his body in a coffee can. Okay. And the idea is that he wants to make enough room so that he can get a jack down there to lever the rock off Floyd's foot. Okay. And he does this. I don't know how he does this because he never gets over being really afraid and really claustrophobic. Right. But he goes down there for hours and hours at a time, and he has these long conversations with Floyd about, like, caves and caving, how he's doing, what's going on above ground. And they also pray and sing gospel music together. Floyd is a devout Baptist. Okay. So after he's done as much as he can, Skeets goes back up, telegraphs the paper, and sleeps for a couple hours, and then he comes back and does it all over again. Okay. Just... I would not have wanted this job. I don't think he wanted this job, but he does an amazing job. Okay. So the other reporters are not going down to talk to Floyd. They're <laughs> standing in the nice part of Sand Cave, yep. <laughs> drinking moonshine and making things up. Awesome. Um, and they're filing really crappy stories. Like they say a couple times, oh, the rescue is over. He's out. And then they go home. Yeah, but, no good. Yeah. So Skeets Miller's stories quickly become the ones that are picked up and distributed in the syndicated papers. And this story hits at a really weird time. There's no other, like we're between the world wars. There's no other big news story that's going on. Yeah. Um, and this is also one of the first stories where they use the telegraph to get news Transfer out really information. quickly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So just something about the tone of his reporting and the feel of the story, because I read a couple times that if Floyd Collins had been killed right away or rescued right away. Yep. There would have been no story. But, but because he's stuck down yeah. there and he can communicate and, like, everyone's doing all kinds of different things to try and get him out, yeah. it becomes this really compelling story. And it just goes on and on and on. And Skeets Miller, his quotes from Floyd really make you root for Floyd and feel kind of optimistic about the rescue. Okay. So I'm going to read you the headline and a paragraph from an Associated Press article written from Miller's reporting that came out on February 4th. Okay. This is one of those really long headlines. I apologize in advance. <laughs> Fresh crew of 14 scoop earth from around Kentucky victim, passing it to surface. All lying flat in mud. That's in all caps. Collins, terribly exhausted, finally gets a little free and joins in the work. Jack is carried into cave. Again, all caps. Newspaper man who heads rescue tells of effort to release the captive. That's all the headline. That's just the headline. <laughs> That's just Don't you the miss old-timey newspaper reporting? Because I don't. I sure do. <laughs> you don't even need to read the story. That's like a lot of drama. Okay. Yeah. Let me give you a quote from the story. Sure. Ready for anything? And once more radiating confidence, Collins himself looked on tonight as this fresh crew of relief forces worked. I'm making all over, but my head is clearer now than at any time since I've been here. Miller quoted Collins as saying, I am praying all the time, praying that God's will be done. I believe his will is that I shall come out alive. I believe that, and it helps me to keep up. Telegrams and news dispatches from all parts of the country have been read to Collins. 
I love them all, he said, because it's mighty fine to know so many are pulling for me. End quote. This doesn't end well, does it? <laughs> this is the second act. If this was a movie. Ray of hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the music would be getting really stressful at this point. And the rescues do try a lot of different things. They tie a rope around Floyd and they try to pull him out. Um, they Jeez. pass all that dirt out. I know that doesn't work, unfortunately. Well, they're lucky it didn't um, they, like rip him in half. Is more what I was worried about. Yeah, that's because he's really, really stuck. And you're passing the rope down through this S, so it's not even like yeah. you're pulling straight up and yeah. it can pop out. You're, like you're going to yeah. lose all your torque trying to pull around that corner. Right. Yeah, right. The, the firemen, for some reason, were really into this. They're just like, <laughs> have him tie it around his waist, and we'll pull. With the truck. It just didn't work. Oh, God. They dig like crazy. They have Miller down there, like, scooping out the dirt and the rocks with a little coffee can. And that didn't work. No, because as soon... Like, this tunnel is very, very fragile. Yeah. So as soon as you move um, too much And with much so of many it. people coming yep. down... Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, like, one person goes by. Even body heat, they said, was causing rocks to, like, get loose and collapse. Jeez. So it sounds like as soon as they dig out part of him... Like, at one point, they get his hands free. Okay. And he's able to move his hands around. Okay. But then, like, someone will shift up above. And more just and comes down. rocks. Right. And it's not just rocks and dust. It's mud. Sure, yeah. As well, yeah, which yeah. is, like, heavier and harder to move. Um, <sighs> okay. They also, like, they bring in some miners, and the miners attempt to sink a shaft down from the open part of the cave, like Baby Jessica style. Do you remember that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just, like, trying to dig like a shaft, and then they'll dig over to him and pull him out that way. Like, as this is going on, Floyd is exhausted and hungry, so they're also keeping, like, a steady stream of food and water and blankets and moonshine going down to Floyd so he can be as comfortable as possible. He really wants coffee. Like, he drinks a lot of coffee when he's down there, and it just makes me so sad to think about, Yeah, you know, being buried up to your neck and just wanting a cup of hot coffee. Yeah. Floyd. Yeah. All right. Okay. So Skeets Miller and Homer Collins and Johnny Gerald work as hard as they can, but they cannot get Floyd's foot unstuck. They dig all the way down his body. They can't get his foot loose. Jeez. And like I mentioned, like it's not, it's not, it's not like they make progress and then, yeah, Yeah. it just keeps collapsing back down on him. And on February 4th, what they had been worrying about actually happens. Part of the ceiling of the tunnel collapses. Okay. And it's about an arm's length away from the last little chamber where Floyd is trapped. Okay. There's a gap of nine inches. He's not completely sealed in. But nobody, like not even Skeets, can wiggle past it. And the tunnel is by now so fragile they can't do any blasting or digging. So they can't move that rock. They can't get to Floyd. But they can talk to him. That's worse, man. It's worse, right? if a giant stalactite had just fallen on his head or something... That would have been much better than, hi, we'll just sit here with you while you slowly starve and suffocate to death. Yeah, we're going to be on the other side of this rock, saying how sorry we are, and we're not even going to be able to get you coffee. God. It's just horrible. That's heartbreaking. horrible, horrible, horrible. That's a bad way to go, everybody. Yeah. Uh, No one can reach him. No one can give him food after the collapse. And the rescue effort kind of moves from the tunnel to the shaft at that point. So all the manpower that they have, like going down the tunnel, trying to dig, moves over to the shaft. And the miners are working on that as hard as they can. 
Um, it takes another 10 days to get. So Floyd is trapped 55 feet underground. Yep. They're sinking that shaft down 50 feet, and then they're digging like an auxiliary tunnel over to where he's trapped. Okay. So it takes them 10 days to get down that far and then over to where he is. Okay. On February 16th, a miner in the shaft is finally able to break into that little chamber where Floyd is trapped, and he finds Floyd's body. So sometime between February 12th and the 15th, he passed away. He had starved to death. Yep. Um, this is a huge news story, obviously, and it's just a very sad final chapter to that whole two-week saga. Yeah. So following this discovery, there is a ton of interest in caves and caving, as well as in Floyd himself. Uh, again. And safety equipment? Is there interest in safety equipment? Not at all, Greg. <laughs> not at all. Um, uh. It's just, it's like, it becomes almost a cash grab. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? <laughs> the Collins kids have a very fraught relationship with their dad. Their dad rebrands the family cave as Floyd Collins Crystal Cavern and pours all their money into fixing up the entrance and walkways. Okay. Something that I thought was really strange that later made more sense to me is that Floyd's brother Homer hits the lecture circuit. Okay. So he goes all the way across the U.S. lecturing different groups. You know, people pay him to go and speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About the rescue efforts. Okay. It, it has to be... A horrible experience. Like, this has to be the worst experience of his life, going down there trying to dig his brother out. He and his brother are very close. Yeah. And just to have to watch someone die that way, not be able to get them. And then have to go around and make your living by talking and about it. And repeat the story hundreds of times. He must have done hundreds of lectures about this. Um, and they were sold out. Like, people uh, could not get enough of this story. Yeah, well, um, we, we are a... That didn't make sense to me until I realized that Nobody, like, nobody's offering to dig Floyd Collins' body out for free. And one of the oh. things that Homer Collins promised him was that he wouldn't leave his body where it was trapped, that he would get him out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. That is awful. It costs $50,000 to do that. Jeez. To get someone down there to retrieve Floyd's body. So Homer Collins did all that lecturing to raise, raise $50,000. Yeah. In $1925. Oh, God. What? Yeah, $50,000 in $1925. Oh, I... Jeez. That's... I mean, for perspective, that's more than, like, a really nice mansion. <laughs> I just... You know, they're so broke. Homer Collins is so broke through all of his life, and he does this, like, out of love for his brother, and I just... I can't imagine what he went through. Just, that's a lot of... Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of love. Okay. Skeets Miller goes on to become a serious journalist. He does not become an opera star. And he wins the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the story. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He goes on to have a really interesting Good career. job, Skeets. Um, yeah. It's not a disaster, so we can't get in here, but good job, Skeets. Good job, Skeets. B. Doyle, who owns the cave, has the tunnel capped, right? So nobody can go down there. Okay. But he still sells 50-cent tickets to see Sand Cave. That's safe part. Okay. Right? And he advertises it on the highway with a huge sign reading. This is really horrible, and I apologize. This is like one of those. 200 yards away, the body of Floyd Collins oh, is imprisoned in Sand Cave. Go yourself, man. No. That is just, um, that is beyond ghoulish. That's, wow. You're going to, okay, you say that now, but. 
let me tell you part two to that story. Oh, there's, oh, good. Also, oh, good. I apologize in advance. You can also get your picture taken with the rock that fell on Floyd's foot, which B. Doyle took out of the cave and had on display in the ticket booth. Awesome. You had to pay to get your picture taken with the rock. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Do you remember the movie Tremors? Where yeah, you get, like, yeah, yeah, one of the yeah, heads yeah. And, and the, the guy's like, I'm going to charge $5. How $5 a the picture. Same thing yeah, only. It's, it's this, yeah. yeah. No. Sadder no. and much worse. Yep. Because B. Doyle knew Floyd Collins. He hired him. Yeah, Floyd Collins would not have been there ghoulish. if B. Doyle hadn't hired him. Yep. It's awful. Awful, awful. Or, or it's just another <laughs> legitimate profit center. Come on. He's a businessman doing business things. He certainly is. I feel like there's a line, though. Oh yeah, there absolutely is. There's a line of is. money, and then there's a there's an absolutely a line, a line and and he went sailing feeling. past it to get his nickel per picture taken with the rock that pinned Floyd. Con- God, uh, awesome. Okay, okay. So after Homer does his lecture circuit and raises enough money, Floyd's body is finally retrieved, and he is laid to rest in his family plot. Good. That is like the little cemetery next to his house okay. where his ancestors are buried. Okay. Two years later, the Collinses hit on hard times and they sell their farm and crystal caves. Okay. I apologize. This is going to get awful again. The new owner has Floyd exhumed and put on display in a glass-topped coffin inside. What? The cave. Yep. Yep. Wow. Okay. Like a Sleeping Beauty coffin. Yeah. No, I get it. Like you. I get yeah, it. Yeah. With a floodlight. Yep. Okay. Wow. So like we saw with Fawn Hoof, certain people will go out of their way to see a dead body, especially a famous one. Sure. Yeah. And the new owner makes a healthy profit. Okay. Wow. I apologize again because it also gets worse. (laughs) Uh, In 1929. (laughs) Oh my God, dude. Floyd's body is stolen. Someone takes it out of the coffin and out of the cave and drags it into a nearby ditch uh, his left leg and foot are cut off and removed. The cave owner finds him the next morning and just puts him back, uh, but in a closed, chained coffin this time. So not the glass coffin. And he gets, in a more isolated spot inside the cavern. He gets grave robbed. It's great. Yeah. yeah. This poor guy. Okay. Cool. Okay. Super cool. This is a great story. I, I just want to thank you for sharing all of this awesome stuff with me. Okay. Hi. So around the same time that Floyd loses his leg... Uh, the last heir to the Krogan Trust dies. Remember the Krogans? Yeah. Okay. So the yeah. niece finally, finally is old enough. Finally to dies. Okay. Yep. And the National Park Service snaps up the property and begins a massive push to acquire the full extent of Mammoth Cave. So that's the original property plus all the land the cave extends into. Okay. Okay. Cool. They don't do this in a way that is super ethical. Okay. They do a lot of lying and a lot of, like, eminent domain land grabs. They take advantage of some very disadvantaged people. Okay. Uh, It's not great. It's not great. Um, They do end up acquiring, quote-unquote, over 600 parcels and 52,000 acres and this is all through, they're working on this all through the 1930s. Okay. So the government effort plus the Great Depression puts an end to the Kentucky Cave Wars. Okay. And in 1941, Mammoth Cave is opened as the 27th U.S. National Park. Okay. And the system itself is renamed the Mammoth Flint Ridge Cave System. Okay. Because it actually connects to another cave system under the Flint Hills. 
1962, the National Park Service acquires Floyd Collins Crystal Cavern. And okay. as you mentioned, it is connected to Mammoth Cave. That connection is not found until the 60s. Okay. So it is like a very obscure connection. But Floyd was right. It does connect. Good job, Floyd. Sand Cave, though, is not connected to Mammoth Cave, um, even though it's suspected that parts of Mammoth Cave run underneath it. So there's probably like some drain hole that connects it. There's just no place that humans can squeeze through. And I don't think we should try. <laughs> that is my editorial opinion. Golly, what's got you so gun shy about that? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> That huge cavern at the bottom of the tunnel that Floyd found was never explored, and it doesn't seem to connect to anything because it's never been found from any other direction Angle. or tunnel. Okay. Exactly. So it could just be that it's a giant pit that doesn't go anywhere. It could also be that it goes somewhere and we just don't know about it yet. Okay. That cave later becomes part of Cumberland Gap National Historic Park. Hey. It's right on the Virginia border. Yeah. All right. And you can actually hike in and see it if you want. There's like an abandoned farmhouse, and you can see the remains of the ticket stand. Uh, the 27-pound rock is gone. I was going to say, do they still have the rock? No. It's free to take a picture with now. No, it's not there. That's gross, dude. Uh, yes, thank you. Always searching for a new low on this podcast. <laughs> you can, so you can hike in and see the cave if you want, that like big open mouth Yep. The safe part. <laughs> the tunnel where Floyd Collins died is capped. It has right. iron bars that, yeah. that are welded into a crate. If you want to go down there, uh, not that you would, but you would have to have a very good reason and you would have to have permission from the National Park Service. Now, in 1977, the two authors of Trapped, the Floyd Collins story, actually get permission from the National Park Service to open up that grate and go down there. And they do. And they find all kinds of artifacts from the 1925 rescue. Okay. And they describe how you have to get down the tunnel. And they are small men. Yeah. They have an incredibly difficult time. They're experienced cavers. And they have all the safety equipment. They have a buddy. They have hard hats. It's an incredibly, incredibly difficult tunnel. It's still very fragile. It's still not safe. Um, and they have a horrible time, like, getting in there and creating enough room for them to get, like, turned around. Okay. But they describe it all in that book. And if you're into that, that's where you can read all about it. They have photos. They have photos, Greg, of this tunnel. Ugh. Just be aware that once you see them, you will not be able to unsee them. Cool. Okay. Cool. I mean, I don't, I don't have an issue with enclosed spaces, but I feel like I didn't if I went I did into this. there, I might. Yeah. <laughs> You would develop one real yeah. quick. <laughs> like parts of parts of where, if you look at photographs of Mammoth Cave, it looks really cool. Like parts of it are huge. Right. You can walk through and see these amazing rock formations. You can see minerals. You can like float around. They have a little boat tour where they did. Okay. You can float around on this underground river. There's all kinds of like cool fossil stuff. And you can see the places where people carve their names in like the early 19th, late 18th century. Sure. There are petroglyphs if you go far enough back. Wow. It's just like a really cool place to visit. This is not that cave. Right. This is like a tight, dank little mud hole that could collapse any minute. 
Like, this is not someplace you would want to be if you had absolutely any other choice. Right. So as a final note, because this really worried me, the Park Service policy on human remains found in caves is a little more respectful than those of the previous owners. Okay. Uh, Von Hoof has long since been sold to the Smithsonian. She's there today. Oh, good. Okay. But additional mummies found in the cave are either left alone or reinterred after consultation with the Native American tribes who lived in this area prior to European settlement. Okay. So those include the Shawnee, the Cherokee, and the Chickasaw nations. Okay. As for Floyd Collins, the National Park Service finally paid to have him re-interred, well, I guess re-re-re-interred <laughs> um, <laughs> at the local Baptist cemetery under his original headstone, which reads, greatest cave explorer ever known. Nice. And that is the long and bizarre saga of the Kentucky Cave Wars and the tragic and horrible death of Floyd Collins. You know, when you said Kentucky Cave Wars, I was I was envisioning Kentuckians like carrying rifles into caves and attempting to do violence on each other. And Yeah, it wasn't that kind of war. No, no, it was it was a sales war. And you know what? I'm I I, I dig it. I'm I'm happier that it was that and not, you know, people crawling around in the dark shooting each other. If you think about the roaring twenties and, like, all the fun that people were having. Oh, yeah. Uh, speakeasies and, like, great haircuts and nightclubs. And this is just, like, another form of Depression that. Depression and, and the Spanish Capitalism flu gone wild. And, well, yeah, obviously. You know, the good stuff. The good stuff. The good stuff comes and goes. But this is, like, the good stuff, the effect of the good stuff on a very rural, very impoverished sure. part of the world. Nah, I dig it. And... Like, who's to say that they weren't doing, like, even B. Doyle yeah. with his horrible bizarre, business sense? <laughs> horrible. Like, he's not operating outside the realm of what is acceptable in yeah. that day and time because people are going there and having their picture taken with the rock. Yeah. Everybody you know, else is doing we're it. We're looking so at it. Fine. <laughs> we're looking at it from our standpoint as, like, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I, people I get who it. would not do I that. Get it. I get it. And uh, that's just not... It's still icky, man. It's still icky. It's icky. I'm trying, I'm trying real hard to reserve judgment. Um, but it's just such a weird story, and there are just so many so many elements yeah. that make it bizarre. Yeah. Uh, although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read any more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope that you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? All right. I am in the place of really wanting to do an anti-disaster next. Nice. And though it begins in disaster and ends, you know, in some tragedy, on the next episode of Relative Disasters, we will be taking a look at the life and times and deeds of Emperor Norton I, Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico. That sounds amazing, and I cannot wait to talk to you about that.